Hello, and welcome to another Profiles of Endurance. I'm Father Scott Vanderveer. Growing up involves challenges for all of us, but today's guest has experienced some challenges that most of us don't expect to face until we are much older. Jeremy Tenenbaum is an only child who experienced very big health challenges for both of his parents. While both of them started their family a little bit later in life, there was no way for them to know that the challenges that usually come in people's 70s and 80s and 90s would approach their household at a much earlier time. Jeremy is here to talk with us about how to face health challenges and confusing and unfair situations in our lives by taking a look at what his experience has been of some extreme health challenges that have pushed him to the brink. Jeremy, we're so glad that you're here with us today. And let's start at the beginning. Talk to us a little bit about being an only child and about your, your family life. What was it like growing up for you? Uh, well, thank you for, uh, for that great introduction, Father. Um, yeah, um, growing up as an only child, it, you know, I, I had a very uh, normal childhood. Um, I lived, um, you know, in a pretty normal uh, rural neighborhood here in Kuksaki. Um Yeah, I mean, like, I knew, you know, you know, I, it, I learned, you know, very early that, like, okay, a lot of my friends have siblings, and, you know, and I understood that, all right, I don't. So that's, you know, big deal. So, um, but, yeah, it was definitely... Um, it, it, it was killing it was great having you know being I was like the center of focus for my parents you know 24 7 you know like it was um you know and I, I when I was growing up like I for a period of time I was uh kind of a lone wolf like I you know there were periods of time in my childhood where I didn't really have many friends and then mm. you know and you know I guess being an only child kind of you know I, I that was already kind of what I was living so yeah um you, were you the kind of person who who liked your own company? You kind of could entertain yourself pretty well. Yeah, like I was, um, like like earlier in my life, I was, I mean, I was pretty introverted. Um, even you know, even now, like you know, I know you all people know that I can I can be very social, but I'm still an ambivert. Like I, I'm kind of a mix between someone who is introverted and extroverted. That's a but great do, term, uh, ambivert. I, I definitely enjoy like my time to myself, but I can be alone with my thoughts. I definitely, you know, I will never undervalue that. Yeah. Yeah. And it makes sense. It makes sense. Especially that's a great gift for an only child to have. I love that you raised that term ambivert. That's beautiful. That's really good. Like introvert, uh, gets energy from being on their own. Extrovert gets energy from being with others. Ambivert gets energy from both depending on the situation. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like a very balanced, like, uh, like social structure, I guess, you know, for me mentally, or, you know, I like, you know, I like being by myself at times, but then there are other times where I want to be around others. So. Yeah, that's, that's, that's really cool. Uh, that's a great new word to have. I've never used that word before, but I will now, thanks to you. Hey, talk, talk to, <laughs> talk to us about what, what role God had in your life growing up? What was, who was God to you? What was that? What did you make of religion and faith? Well, of course, uh, you know, my mother, you know, being Catholic, you know, coming from, um, like a Catholic family, um, you know, God was always in my life, you know, from, you know, from like my very earliest memories, like I was baptized as an infant, 
and you know my mother made sure to raise me in the uh the christian faith and you know, we we always went to you know like saint mary's was always my church because this has always been my hometown so mm. um but you know god to me was you know just like the the ultimate power the ultimate creator in all of existence mm. you know that's that's god to me god you know god is the one you know the one being that truly matters yeah. you know in the grand scheme of things yeah what is really interesting part of your life is the fact that while your mom has always been a strong catholic with strong catholic faith your dad comes from a very different religious tradition. Talk to us about that. Yeah, so my uh, my father comes from a, from a Jewish family. Um, he was um, he was born and raised in Catskill, just a couple towns away. And um, yeah, is but um, for, for really my entire life though, he he really didn't uh, he didn't practice uh, Judaism a ton. Um, and I think and from you know from what I learned was you know he he had lost his parents. Uh, uh, both to illness back in the 80s so my dad's parents were they had passed well before I was born so I never got to know them mm. but um but yeah like but they, they come from you know um the Tenenbaums and the Shermans you know my father's parents you know they have long Jewish lineages um we actually um we saw uh, back when I was younger we went to Ellis Island and uh, we actually saw an engraving of uh, my father's ancestors coming in through Ellis Island, like in the early 20th century. Wow. Yep. Wow. So, yep. So, like I said, like my father's side again, just a very long lineage of you know of uh, Jewish people. Wow, it's it's a pretty wonderful thing for you to have the on your father's side the the same faith that Jesus grew up with. And on your mother's side, the the ability to practice that in the tradition of sacraments and and the the Christian worldview and using the gospel that Jesus gave us. I mean, it's kind of a, a great combination. You know, I, I think it's really interesting that you said that you saw God as the ultimate power, because I think that, that it, it's a very beautiful and faithful way to look at God. But it does, I would imagine, put a little bit of pressure on God. Because yeah, it I means, mean, you know, and maybe power wasn't, you know, I mean, maybe that wasn't the best word. Like, you know, God, you know, of course, you know, God isn't just about power. God is also about love because, you know, he loves us, you know, his creations. He loves life, which he created. Yeah. But, um, you know, but, you know, but of course God, you know, of course God is, you know, like I said, our creator, he, you know, the ultimate authority in the universe. You know, nothing is greater than him. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting too because I think a lot of us are raised believing that and and believing it even now. But it does put us in a tough position when something bad happens because I don't know, you know, if you're like me, oftentimes when something bad happens, the first thing I do is turn to God and say, "Okay, please fix this." You know, yeah, <laughs> you know, and especially with all the all the tragedies and you know, wars and terrorism and genocide that have happened throughout human history. It's, you know, it's, it, and a lot of people are like, you know, how, how could God let this happen? How, how could God allow this? And, and you know, it's, you know it's, and when I, when I think about it, it's like, yeah, I mean, they make a point. It's like, it, it's, it's a tough thing to chew on when, when, you know, when you're talking about, you know, so many times throughout history where, you know, where innocent people have perished and, and then, then that begs the question to this, you know, did all this happen for a reason? Is, is this part of God's plan, 
you know, for for mankind or, or for life on Earth. You know, it's it's part of the his infinite mystery. You know, we may we may never know in this life. We maybe maybe mankind is never meant to know. But yeah. Um, but you know, when 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 bad things happen, I mean, I of course I absolutely never let it shake my faith. You know, he, he just even even when bad things started to happen, you know, to me and my parents. Yeah. You know, I just always, you know, knew just to hold my head high and, you know, just know that, you know, this, you know, this is just our physical life here on earth. And I think, you know, really that having that strong belief in heaven and the afterlife, you know, kind of made me think like, you know, even, even when the, if the worst should happen here, this is not the end anyway. So, yeah, it's, well, and you've really shown that by going through this and, and, and as we start to talk about the health issues that, that your parents had, let's talk a little bit about um, your growing up. You were born in 1992, so um, still in your 20s. You Would you say that your memories of when you were a kid, were your parents pretty healthy and strong? Oh, yeah. They, yeah when I was a kid, yeah, they were both very healthy. So that changed when you were in high school because of of a diagnosis that your mom got. Can you talk to us when things first started to be difficult for your mom? What were the early days of of her struggle like? Um, it, it really the diagnosis it, it kind of really came out of the blue with my mother. Um, I remember um, toward the end of two thousand and eight, I was trying to think. I was in my junior year of high school, um, so I, I was already playing football and. You know, and it, you know, of course, going you know going through you know my teen years, and you know I had graduation coming up the following year, so you know I you know I had a lot of you know that positive positive things going through my mind. Yeah. You know, just thinking about you know what lies ahead in life, and uh, and I, you know, my mother, you know, my mother, she really didn't complain about much, you know, especially like physical pain. Like, um, I just remember, you know, my mother was complaining. It might have been for like a week or two or maybe a few weeks that she kept having pains like in her side and in her abdomen. And it just got to the point where she, you know, she had to go to the doctor to get it checked out. And then she has, um, she has a scan done. And then, you know, they, they didn't, um, I, I remember, um, from my father telling me, um, like the scans could not, you know, they couldn't see definitively if it was like cancerous or not, but you know, she, you know, she had a large lump on one of her ovaries and she had these other unidentified, like, um, I guess, well, what do you call it? Just like, you might have to edit this part out. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's um, all good. Abnormalities, I guess, you know, throughout her abdomen. Yeah. So, you know, they, so they knew they, you know, they had to do surgery, you know, as soon as possible. And, and I think once, uh, you know, once the surgeon went in there and removed everything, that's when they found out, okay, it's cancer. It's, you know, ovarian cancer. And it was already stage three by the time she had uh, that hysterectomy surgery. Wow. And this is, you are a junior in high school. Ju- yeah, junior in high school. And I just, and, I actually found, you know, my father was the one that told me. I think my mother was just kind of, you know, she was probably just in shock from it. And she was just so, you know, she's probably very worried about, you know, how it how it mentally impact me. So I heard it from my father. I think uh, we were actually at a high school basketball game or something. And, you know, because that, you know, that's when he told me about, you know, you know, listen, the scans they did on your mother, they found something and they'll have to operate and, 
and then like I said, after the operation, it's like, oh, she has cancer now. So, ooh, what was yeah. what was your reaction to that? What was going on inside of you when you heard that? Just, uh, I mean, I think just what anyone would have, just shock. Yeah. Like, are you kidding me? Like my mother, you know, mm. you know, my mother has cancer, and it's you just you just kind of stand there, and, and you you know from that point, it's like you know, my childhood will never be the same now. Oh. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a shock and then a real, you know, sobering realization that, you know, life's going to be different now. And it's, you know, and this this is going to, this could very well define the rest of my mother's life, you know, especially hearing that it was a later stage of cancer. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, those first five years, she, she was, was she, she was never again cancer free. Is that right? It was always a battle from that point on. Uh, she, no, she did have periods of remission. Um, did she? Yeah, she did. And actually, the first, the first one was actually, uh, it was the longest and probably the best one from what I remember. So after her surgery, so this was like uh, January of 2009, um, you know, she had, you know, they gave her about a month off, you know, just you know, to recover from the surgery and everything, get her body back to, you know, to normal. And then, then she started... Um, I think she ended up doing, I believe, six or seven uh, very aggressive rounds of chemotherapy, mm. um, which uh, lasted all the way through spring. Mm. Um, and then I think the last of the rounds she finished up, I believe, in May or June of '09, mm. and it like it beat the hell out of her. Like it was, it was, it was really rough. But um, and I'm, you know, and she, of course, she lost all of her hair immediately and. And then, you know, she was starting to have neuropathy, and she was have, I remember coming home from school, um, and, you know, there were days where she had, like, fainting spells, and, I, I, like, I remember this one day, like, she, like, she collapsed to the floor, I think, like, three times, like, within an hour. Oh, boy. Oh, and boy. And it, it was just, you know, it was just very scary for me to see, I'm like, man, this is, like, I, like, I, you know, I just still can't believe, like, you know, this is happening to my mom. And I'm like, and there's nothing I can do. Yeah. Were, were you, at that point, were you making a role for yourself in this? Were you kind of like figuring out, I'm going to, I'm going to learn about this well, disease? Absolutely, yeah. Like I, I knew like, you know, because my, you know, my father, you know, he still had to work. So, you know, he can only be with mom so much. And I knew, you know, especially... You know, since I was growing up, I was kind of, you know, in that transition between, you know, a boy and, you know, and then, you know, becoming a man. I was like, you know, we're going to, for mom, it's like my father can't be the only man in the house. You know, I'm going to have to, you know, pitch in myself, it's, you know, because, you know, it, it just, it's, you know, it's going to take, you know, everything we have to support her and help her get through this. Oh, it's like you said, my childhood will never be the same again. That's gone now. That that's uh, yeah. That 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 definitely went through my head. It was like I said, it was shock, and just like you're kidding me. Like you know, because you know, like I said, the, you know, both of their, you know, their health had been you know fine. You know, you know, my my parents were both you know a little bit overweight at the time, but you know nothing drastic. Mm. But um, yeah, and then just when I when I found that out, I'm just like, you know, like everything's gonna change now. Mm. You know, and I and I and it didn't, you just, you know, I know for some you know, for some people it might take a long time to just let that soak in, kind of like to to kind of digest that. But 
for me, it was like, well, all right, well, I got to, you know, I'm still a student. I got to continue going to school. I got to, you know, I got to press on toward graduation. I, you know, I still wanted to, you know, obviously compete in sports and do school clubs. But there was always going to be this thing in the back of my mind, like, you know, my mom has cancer. Yeah. And, like, that's that's my new priority right now is making sure she's okay. Wow. Was it, do you, can you think back to what your mood was at graduation? At graduation, were you thinking, okay, maybe we got this? Was she in a good spot around graduation time? Oh, yeah, she was. Um, after, so during the summer of 09, like she was, she was actually in remission. Um, you know, she was still reeling from a lot of the side effects. You know, it, it took her, it took her really the whole summer and then some, I think, to really grow her hair back. And that, and that was something, you know, she she was always so, you know, worried about, like, oh, like, how long is it going to take for my hair to come back? I'm like, oh, mom, forget about your hair. It's like, you know, how is, you know, how is your health? And, yeah. But, uh, of course, my mom, um, of course, I remember I went wood shopping with her one or two times. And uh, she, she bought, I remember she had, a, she got so many different wigs, so... I think, I don't know, maybe, maybe just the whole vanity thing was kind of helping her take her mind off the, the more serious part of having cancer, but yeah, that was her thing. Like, if she had her hair, then she was good. <laughs> That's a pretty tender, um, it's a pretty tender picture in my mind, and I imagine in the mind of many of our listeners, to hear that you were shopping for wigs with your mom. I mean, what a loving thing for you know, a, a son to do at that age. A lot of kids that age don't want to go anywhere with their parents. You know, <laughs> they're like, I just want to be out. I just want to be with my friends. I just want to be doing my own thing or playing my sports. Yeah. But, but the thought of you being there wig shopping with your mom. Wow. So, so in, and, um, yeah, so I remember in, we even went, um, we went on a vacation in, uh, that summer in 09, we went to, uh, one of the many places on the Atlantic coast, I, I forget, it, it was like, um, it might, it might've been like Myrtle Beach or someplace like that. Yeah. Uh, or, or, or Beach in Delaware, one of those places. But yeah, we went there and I remember, uh, you know, mom got a chance to, you know, to really relax for the first time in months, you know, and she was, she was starting to, you know, little by little, you know, like I said, like those side effects you get from chemo, it takes a long time for your body to kind of heal from that. Yeah. Um, but then, um, but yeah, but then going into my senior year of high school, you know, she, you know, she had a full head of hair back and she was able to get it colored and stuff regularly. And, and, um, and then she was actually able to go back uh, to work for the state. She actually went back full time. I remember, um, for a while. Um, and then I, I believe, I don't know when, when she had her first recurrence, I think maybe that's when she dropped to like like part-time but but yeah but she went back to work full-time you know months later and you know like I said I was a senior in high school that was probably like the best year of high school for me personally and and then as you were saying before you know high school graduation things were really looking up you know um by the time I graduated high school she was like a full year into remission and um and you know of course she she kept going back for, for checkups regularly and she every time she turned out clear it was like a little victory we got to celebrate so yeah how was your dad dealing with your mom's illness emotionally what what did he do to to keep forging ahead did he I could imagine some spouses would try to pretend it wasn't going on as much as possible act as normal as possible yeah, but- how did he do it? Yeah, and there was, there was no pretending in this household. We, we were always 
very frank with each other. My father, you know, he was never a, a super emotional person. Like, I know, and I think, I don't know if that was just from, because of what he went through and his, his upbringing, but, um, you know, he was, you know, like I said, he, he was definitely like, you know, like, like the leader of the household. He was the one that, you know, because, you know, obviously mom, you know, my mother had to kind of, you know, um, uh, kind of pull his leg a little bit with, uh, de- you know, certain decisions and financial decisions and stuff like that. But, and I think that's focus was just, you know, just, to, you know, keep moving forward in life. And like I said, he, it's, you know, like, I think, I think honestly, once the recurrences started with mom, that's when, you know, we started seeing him, you know, become a little more like settled down. And, you know, he started becoming a little bit more like, all right, let's, you know, you know, maybe all these, you know, all these little things in life that I, I, you know, I focus on so much or, you know, maybe I can just not worry about that. And, you know, I think, I think as mom's health started to, I think it kind of like showed him like what really matters in life even more. Mm. Like I said, even though he was always a good person, he was always a morally like good person. So, yeah, that was my father. Like I said, just. Um, you know, a lot, a lot like my mother, they were never emotional people for the most part. Mm. So that, that's just, that was my parents. That's, that's who they were. What, talk to me about when your dad first started showing signs of cognitive struggle. Your mom, your mom had been dealing with cancer for a while. I still, to this day, and I will never forget the very first warning sign that my mother and I noticed. I had just uh, graduated. I got my two-year degree from Hudson Valley Community College. Um, the very next week, we flew out to California, out to San Francisco, and we uh, we took a vacation out there. Ah. And the the day the day we got there, um, we stayed at this uh, at this hotel right up by the Fisherman's Wharf, like right on the edge of the bay. Yeah. And you know, we had a long day of flying and. You know, we, so we were, we were a little bit jet lagged. So you know, we just you know we checked in, we got our stuff in, we just immediately just laid down on the beds for a little bit, and we were, you know, and then we were like, ah, right, you know, we'll, we'll get up at some point and we'll go, we'll go walk around and you know see what there is to see, and maybe find a place to eat. But so mom and I are just kind of relaxing, and of course, you know, my father, he, you know, he any every vacation, as soon as we get into the room, he starts unpacking all the suitcases and filling up the dressers mm-hmm. with all our clothes. He sets up the bathroom with all of our toiletries. He's very, you know, it's like that's his routine anytime we take a trip. And mom and I just kind of were like, yeah, we're just going to lay down. <laughs> mm. um, but I remember, you know, he got finished unpacking everything and he wanted to go walk outside and just take a look around, um, you know, the neighborhood we were in. And he couldn't find the door. Oh. Like, the door, he, 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 he kept, um, you know, and it, it, the mom and I didn't really notice at first, but he, he just could not find the doorknob. And then, you know how, uh, like, in certain rooms, there'll be, like, that door that leads directly into the next room, but they, they always keep it bolted shut? Yes. So he, he was able to see that board. He kept yanking on that one, but, you know, it was dead bolted. And it was locked. And I'm like, Dad, that's the wrong door. What are you doing? That's that's the that door goes into the adjacent room. So so he, he would so he would go back to searching for the door. I'm like, Dad, you're all right, like what's going on? And he's just you know, and he, 
he's just telling me like, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to find the door. I'm like, Dad, you're standing next to it. Like it's the doorknob is right there. Yeah. And then you know, and then Mom was just like, you know, Jeff, what's the matter with you? You just, you know, just we're you know we're thinking like, ah, right, you know, maybe he's jet lagged. He's just kind of a little bit loopy or something. Who knows? Right. So it took him. You know, and my mom and I, you know, we did we didn't get up to help him because, like, we knew that's like, all right, he's he's gonna get this. It took him like ten, maybe fifteen minutes to finally find the doorknob to to go outside. At that point, Jeremy, how old would he be when you were about twenty? He was in his mid fifties. So okay, so uh, twenty twelve. Um, so he would have been. Uh, 56, I believe. 56 is, right. is young. Yeah, you know, 55, 56, he was about that age. That's a so young, that trip. young prime of life age. Mm-hmm. Not the kind of age you expect to have confusion and dementia. No, I mean, you know, dementia didn't even cross our minds, Mom and I would, you know, because, you know, once he found... You know, and, and before he found the doorknob, he was, like, trying to, like, open the window as if he was trying to claw out the window or something. And I'm like, what is, like, what is his problem right now? And yeah. I'm sitting there, I'm like, Dad, turn around. The door's there. So, you know, once he, you know, like I said, he eventually got it like, after an excruciating long amount of time watching him trying to, like, you know, he's trying to feel the walls, trying to feel for a crease. And you know, it was just weird. And then. Um, you know, after, after that, he was perfectly fine the rest of the trip. Um, mom and I just kind of wrote it off. It was like, all right, maybe, maybe he was just jet lagged, a little loopy. I don't know. Right. And then, um, and then he didn't show another warning sign probably until months later. Wow. What's an example yeah. of another kind of warning sign that, that you know, you remember? Um, driving, um, it is, uh, his driving abilities, you know, it definitely, uh, it, took a noticeable plunge um he, he would be as long as he was like in town or anything like that he would be fine but um he, he started to, and this was the beginning of that visual spatial disorientation that was like the very first symptom of his disease and to this day it's still the most prevalent symptom um wow. anytime um, like you know if i'm if i was like riding passenger with him if we were on one of those back roads with no lines painted on it he would kind of like lose, like um, he would kind of lose track of like where on the road he was. Sometimes he would he would be driving in the, like the middle of the road. I'm like, Dad, there's a blind turn coming up. Maybe you want to get to the right. right. And he's like, You know, I am. And I'm like, Dad, no, you're not. You're like, you know, you're almost like, you're basically half in the other lane. Like, you know, like you don't like you don't go around blind turns or over blind hills in the middle of the road. Like you get over to the right. That's what you do. Mm. And uh, so I started, started noticing that a little bit. He started um, started having a little bit of difficulty uh, in the workplace because um, uh, he, he spent his whole career working for GE Plastics in uh, Selkirk, which got which turned over to uh, Sobic. Mm. Um, and they, they basically did the same stuff, a lot of, you know, plastics manufacturing and that kind of stuff. Mm. And, um, and then, you know, part of Dad's job was, you know, he, he did a lot of, like, uh, laboratory work, like uh, measurements, um of uh, chemicals and that kind of stuff. So, you know, he started, you know, I, I, I remember overhearing him telling mom, like, yeah, he's, you know, he, he like, he, there, he had days of work where he was, like, screwing up measurements a lot, and then, 
his supervisor was starting to get on his case about it, and you know, we, and then you know, just with that, and then the driving, and then um, you know, a few other things. You know, he's starting to, you know, starting to have slight trouble putting his clothes on correctly when he get dressed, and and I think at that point we're like, all right, Dad, something's clearly going on. We're you know, we're gonna get you checked out. Yeah. So, how how long did it take to get a diagnosis? Um, so his diagnosis, um, it was actually uh, the second opinion. He saw a neurologist, and uh, I guess didn't you know didn't really I guess didn't really like the answers that uh, that he gave him. Went to I guess arguably a better neurologist who's affiliated with Alpine Med, mm. um, and then you know they did. Um, you know, they did, like, an MRI of Dad's head, and they did all these other, like, special scans that can, like, measure the brain activity. And and then this neurologist was like, you know, I am, you know, without a doubt, this is Alzheimer's disease that's developing. And then, so that was at, like, the end of 2013, early 2014. Um, I remember I was home from, uh, from college on uh, winter break, and uh, he just he just told me one day, he's like, yeah, because I, I knew he was seeing a neurologist about, you know, what was going on with his, his you know, his short-term memory lapses and, and like I said, the visual problems he was having. And, you know, once he said Alzheimer's, I'm just, you know, I, I, I'm just like, like, um, like now it's both of them. And I, I, I actually kind of teared up a little bit. And I'm just like, you, like, this is ridiculous now. I'm like, you know, mom, you know, Chris, you know, mom, at this point, mom was you know, bouncing in and out of, like, very, very short-lived admissions, and then before, you know, before she knew it, she was back on some other treatment again, so, you know, she, you know, she was kind of, you know, barely, you know, holding, hanging in herself, and, and now dad is having, developing a disease where, you know, he's not going to be able to do anything on his own eventually, and then now, and then, you know, now it's going to be back on mom and I to help him while I'm trying to help a mom with what she's going through. And Jeremy, you're 21, 22 years old, and you're realizing, I just, the words you just said make me feel so heavy. Now it's both of them. You know, for a yeah, young yeah, man to say now. Like, this is, it's, it's going to be like a two-fronted battle. Oh. You know, for, for years to come. It's like, now I'm going to, you know, and I, and I, and I knew, you know, obviously it's not like anything immediately had to change, but I knew like, you know, like I, you know, I knew I still had to finish up college cause I, you know, I still had like another year and a half to go, give or take. And, um, yeah, and I knew, and I just knew, uh, once I got out of college, I was going to have to stay at home for a while and, you know, look after them. Oh, Jeremy. You it's, know, because it's... they were only going to be able to take care of each other for so long, you know? Who was more upset at that point with what they were going through? Who was the most upset person? You said they weren't very emotional people, but did did that change when things got this hard? I, I think I think you know, mom. I think mom. She clearly got more upset because you know, my dad. You know, my my dad. You know, I'm sure there's a lot going on in his mind, but you know, he didn't. He, like I said, he didn't outwardly show a lot. You know, emotionally speaking. You know, he. I'm sure he felt bad, but you know, my mother. You know, it's just like kind of like what I was saying. Like you know, you know, like you know, if it's not enough for 
you know, me to have cancer. Now my husband has Alzheimer's. Oh. You know, and our one son, you know, he's, you know, he's stuck in the middle of all this too. Oh, it's just, yep. it truly is. Can, do you remember, this is a very personal question, but then again, that's exactly what this, this kind of conversation is for. Do you remember what your what you were saying to God back then? What were your prayers like? Were you were you wishing that were you asking God to reverse it? Please make this not true. Or did you did you pray that there would be a miracle? Did you what were the kind of things you were praying for? As you, you know, I, I, I tend to not pray for things that I know aren't going to happen. Like I obviously, I obviously knew, you know, it's like, all right, it's, you know, it's medically impossible for there to be a, you know, reversal. It's like, you know, Alzheimer's. You know, I, I think Dad's diagnosis. You know, we started learning more and more about the disease, and there, you know, there was really no, no treatment for it. You know, like, like they're like memory pills. They're pills, I should say, pills that patients can take to kind of stimulate their memory a little bit. But it's just it just kind of slows down the progression of the disease, and and you know I, I knew there was yeah I I already knew there was, you know there's no cure for it. It's not like it's not like cancer where it's like all right if you know if you're doing if you're doing treatment if you're doing radiation if you're doing chemo at least you have a chance. But with Alzheimer's you know it, it just goes to show how you know how how much more progress you know needs to be made for you know for for, you know, for that disease and, and all kinds of other neurological ailments. Jeremy. Um, but I remember, yeah, I, I remember, you know, I, of course, you know, when I, you know, when I was spending, spending time by myself, I just remember, you know, just talking to God and saying, you know, like, God, like, this is, <laughs> you know, I, I, I kind of, I almost kind of had, like, developed, like, an imagination where, like, you know, every, you know, everything was normal again. And, but, like I said, I don't, I don't pray for things that I know aren't going to happen. Yeah. It's, you know, I think, it, I think it was kind of better for me to just, you know, accept it gradually. I hear that. And, 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 and at least, you know, at least just pray, you know, for the strength to help them through it and, and, and just, you know, just hope for, you know, you know, the best that can come out of it. So... It's a very mature, very, very mature attitude. I mean, I'm just very aware of that. That even people who practice their faith very strongly, very faithfully, many of them who are listening right now are thinking, and I forgive me for imposing this on them, but I just know myself and others, you know, well enough from experience of conversations, people are thinking, God, please undo this. Please let a miracle happen. Please let this be the yeah, one in a million. And, and I'd be lying if I said, you know, I didn't have those thoughts going through my head, but I I, I don't think I ever actually, you know, got on my knees and prayed that, because I'm like, you know, that's just, you know, even God knows, you know, and like, like I said, not to, you know, I don't want to sound like a downer for other people that pray for miracles, but like, you know, I just, you know, I, I I just have to be really, you know, it's, it's, it's times like that where I have to really be frank with myself and be like, you know, really, am I, am I really praying for a medical impossibility? Like, uh, but I, you know, I think most, I pray for, like I said, more practical things. Like I just said, you know, pray, you know, just, you know, let us have the strength we need to get through this, you know, let life continue as normally as possible for us for as long as possible. Let us enjoy, you know, as much of life as we can. 
before this really starts getting bad. Yeah. You know, even, you know, even when it starts getting bad, you know, hopefully, you know, we'll still be able to, you know, keep it in the back of our minds and still just be able to, you know, you know, enjoy things and laugh about things. And... Jeremy, when did your dad need to move out of the house because of his, his illness? Uh, 2017. Um, so just over three years ago, um, very early that year, um, because let me just kind of, I'll quickly kind of get you up to that point. Dad was, so dad was at the point where, you know, mom had to basically, she didn't have to dress him, but like she had to, you know, make sure like he was putting on his clothes correctly. He needed assistance with that. Um, uh, he, uh, he got to the point where he couldn't um, he couldn't sort out his own medications anymore. Either mom or I had to give him his meds every day. Um, he was still, I think by by 2016, he had actually given up driving. Like, and he actually he decided on his own, like under his own will, to to not drive anymore. Like, mom, mom and I knew that you know we, we were restricting him. Like, if you're gonna drive, dad in town only that's it stay on the town roads which he was still able to negotiate or if he was going to drive to the YMCA to go work out he could still do that because he could still park but then but then yeah then once driving went and then like I said dressing himself medications he was still able to cook basic things or at least help mom cook um, but yeah he started losing that ability um, but yeah, but when 2017 rolled around, uh, we started looking at um, assisted living facilities, the three of us. So we went on some family field trips together. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, we, we looked at some of the places uh, owned by the Eddie Corporation. Um, like we're, we're actually, the Eddie is, uh, they're like St. Peter's Health Partners, I think. Yes. Um, so, yeah, we looked at, uh, we looked at the one in um, East Greenbush, and we looked at uh, Atria Gilderland, where my father you know, wound up uh, living at for two years. Um, but yeah, we, um, but then, of course, we were looking at some local places. So there were um, two places in Catskill um, that we knew of. There was uh, Home Sweet Home, and then there was the Eddie in mm. Jefferson Heights. So uh, so June of that year, 2017, um, you know, we, we made the decision, like, all right, we're going to move that into the Eddie. Um, because, you know, we, you know, because, like, the Eddie... They, they're, they're a very, like, baseline assisted living community. People that live there still have to have, like, a certain degree of independence. Yeah. You know, like, like places like that, like, they'll do your laundry, they'll cook your meals, you know, they'll, they'll organize, like, activities and stuff. You know, they'll even, you know, they'll have, you know, people that can take you on walks occasionally, but other than that, you're kind of left to your own devices, and... And I think when they evaluated my father, they didn't really realize that. Yeah, he, you know, be, you know, he has a real problem, you know, negotiating, you know, seeing things and making sense out of things. And then, of course, and then he had, he was a wanderer. So he, you know, he had actually walked out the front door a few times and they had to bring him back in oh. before he would go very far. So that was, that, that was an issue. And then, you know, he would have, like, his, his nighttime episodes. They, they call it sundowner syndrome. Yeah. Um, it's, it's very common for people with dementia where uh, you, you, you're just, 
you're mentally completely out of whack. Uh, you know, after you know, after this, basically during nighttime, and uh, and and he had a lot of like hallucinations, a lot of delusions. It wasn't every night, but it was. It started happening enough nights out of the week where, all right, mom and I, you know, we would get woken up, you know, so many nights by him wandering around the house at night, you know, just talking about nonsense and claiming that there was other people in the house or he, or that he's not even in his own home. And then it's just, you know, and all mom and I could do was just get him back to bed and hopefully, you know, hope he could sleep through the rest of the night, you know, but. So he was having that too. So we moved him into, uh, like I said, um, the Elliot and Catskill. And then a couple weeks later, it was just too much for them. You know, it was clear that he needed a higher level of care. So, you know, it, we, we moved him back into the house two weeks later. Oh, my. And then, um, and then he, lived, he lived at home again for a month. And then in uh, July... Um, yeah, some, yeah, sometime in July that year, we were like, okay, well, we saw, we saw this place, Atria Gilderland, we liked it, they're a lot more expensive, but, you know, we can, you know, we can afford it for the foreseeable future, so, um, we moved in there, and that's where we was for two years. Wow, wow, wow. <clears throat> now, 2017 was a terrible year for your dad because of this this new stage of his illness. But, Jeremy, it was also a really hard year for your mom with her cancer. 2017, I mean, that, that's probably, that, that was probably the worst year of my life, Father. Oh. Um, in terms of, like, stress and, and, and then just knowing what my parents, you know, because, you know, my father, we had to move him out of the house. That's, you know, it's like, just, think, just you know, imagine, you know, imagine you're someone my age, and you're like, and you actually have to make plans to move one of your parents out of their own home. I can't imagine. It's, yeah, it's it's just you know it's it's a tough thing to chew on. Um, Twenty five years old. Yeah, and you know, and my father, and I, I guess the silver lining of this was my father went along with this. He he, and I think, and I, part of me thinks he still is. He he was always aware of his own illness. He knew that he was declining. Like he. He didn't, I mean, there were times he got, you know, he, he kind of, he would throw a tantrum or two with mom and I about something ridiculous, but I think overall, like, he knew that, you know, even when we moved him into Atria, when, when, when we were, when some of the staff there, like the administrators and people were introducing themselves to him, and, and then, like, the director of the unit he lived in, you know, when, when she was getting to know him, he would, he, I remember I'd be, I'd be sitting there with him. And he would tell her, oh, oh yeah, I'm Jeff. Um, I have Alzheimer's disease. Wow. And she was like, wow, he, he's really self-aware. That's, in, that's incredible. A lot of people with that illness are in complete denial that they even have a problem. Yes. So, yeah. Yeah. So that, Unusual. That was, you know, Unusual. My father, you know, he was very cooperative with mom and I. Like, you know, we, we, and he, he was, you know, he wasn't picky at all. Like, you know, we showed him. You know, like we went to a couple places that kind of looked like, eh, I don't know if I'd be comfortable with you living here. And, you know, and dad would just be like, eh, it seems okay. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, then, you know, then, of course, like, Atria being, you know, a much nicer place, you know, I'm just like, okay, I, you know, mom and I felt good moving them there. And like I said, we, you know, we sucked it up and put up with the cost of it. Yes. And then, you know, but like I said, you know, early on, though, dad, you know, dad had, he had to adjust mentally. 
to, you know, like I said, to li- living with these completely different surroundings with strangers that he's never met before. So, and then as the months went by, he actually really started becoming very happy with where he was, you know, which made mom and I happy. I, yeah. Oh, I can imagine. I can imagine. I, I'm, I'm so aware though for your mother who at that point was in her late fifties she kept having, like you said, my childhood now will never be the same. She had to say, oh my goodness, marriage the way I've known it is over. Yeah. You know, this partnership. That was the truth of it. Yeah. Oh, how how challenging. Jeremy, your mom in, in the year uh, 2017 was fighting hard. This was a, this was a year, was it not, of a lot of clinical trials? She really worked yeah, hard she, at surviving. So, so in 2016, um, you know that was a little bit of a rough year for us too, because that was when uh, women's cancer care at St. Peter's uh, basically was out of options for her. They, they had nothing left to treat her with, and um, and I remember sitting in the room with her oncologist when he told us, because you know she 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 just came off of. Um, a chemo treatment which gave her a bad case of thrush, which, uh, which were, you know, if, if you don't know, Father and people listening don't know, it's it's, uh, it's like a fungal infection that starts in your mouth, and if you don't treat it right away, it can go down into your digestive tract, and then at that point, it's very life-threatening. So she had a really nasty side effect from a drug. She did get treated for it, and then after that, after, after she recovered, that's when our oncologist was like, all right, Debbie, listen, you know, we, we, we have to stop trying to treat you. Like, this this last chemo and what you just had, this could have killed you. Oh. And so it's like, and just seeing that that serious look on her doctor's face and that serious tone when he said, you know, we can't treat you anymore. You know, and then he started recommending palliative care and then eventually hospice care. And I'm just like, I'm, I'm there with like, I almost, my jaw almost dropped. I'm like, What? And, you know, my, my, I don't think mom was prepared to really hear that, too. Oh, so, Jeremy. Yeah, and he basically it's just like, her, you know, her doctor, not that, you know, not that he doesn't want to, not that he wouldn't like to try, but I think just being a medical professional, he knew that continuing these, all these crazy drugs that, you know, some of them aren't even really targeted for ovarian cancer. You know, it's, I think he knew that, Trying, continuing to try to treat her would have done her more harm than good at that point. Oh boy! Oh boy! So, so then you know, mom had already she had already uh, talked to uh, doctors at Sloan Kettering in New York by that time, and uh, and then uh, I think one of the one of the chemo nurses recommended Dana Farber in Boston, which I'm sure you know you living out there, father. I know I'm sure you've heard of that hospital. That's right. Yeah, it's a. I, I spent ten years in Boston, and I it's one of the very best and most famous cancer and hospitals, and they do a lot of they're, research they're there. Highly regarded for uh, for treating uh, like children's cancer. They're they're basically like the St. Jude's of the Northeast. They're, you know, I remember any time we went there, there was a lot of children in wheelchairs. I mean, it, it was it was very sad to see, but it's like, well, you know what? If they're here, they have a fighting chance because this is a very good hospital. So. Jeremy, one of the things I'm hearing in your voice right now, even as you say that, and as you talk about your mom in this stage of her treatment, you have an unusual gift of holding on to hope. What does hope look like in, in 2017 when your mom is going through this? 
What does hope look like? What is what is hope? Hope. Well, hope is. Uh, I think. I think hope is that. Uh, and really, it it starts and ends with my mother. It was her determination to be like, you know, like I said, when her oncologist at St. Peter's told her we can't treat you anymore, it's like not you know, of course she was really thrown back by that, but she was. I think I think it actually gave her more resolve to be like, I'm not giving up. Like wow. I know, she's like, if if there if there's a place out there that'll treat me, that's where I'll go. And um, and then. When uh, I remember when we made that first trip out to Dana Farber, you know, all three of us went. You know, you know, both my parents and myself, and um, we sat down and talked to uh, her uh, new oncologist out there. And the doctor sounded very, you know, she sounded very upbeat. She sounded like, you know, she was very positive. Um, she actually wrote down on paper a bunch of possible uh, treatment options that you know they could try that my mother would have been a candidate for. Wow. And, um, yeah, and it was, it was very uplifting, you know, because, like, that, that oncologist in Boston, like, she, you know, she was, I think she, her mom had the same mentality. She's like, you know what, you know, we're, you know, we, we have access to more treatments than, you know, than St. Peter's did. And it's like, you know, I can tell by looking at you, she's like, you know, you're, you know, one, you know, you're in your 50s, you know, you're still young. And she's like, you know, looking at you, you physically look like, you know, you have some fight left in you and. You know, you know, you still are physically healthy. You know, outside of outside of the whole cancer thing, and you know, she she, you know, I think mom, my mother, and that oncologist were on the same page about like, you know what, we're not going to leave a stone unturned. We're gonna we're gonna try one thing. If that doesn't work, or if it backfires or something, we'll give you some time off, and then we'll try the next thing. Wow. So that uh, it was like very, it was very like definitive, the plan of attack. As soon as we got the Dana Farber, and then I think that that really gave me hope. I'm like, all right, like I'm already liking this place. <laughs> yeah. Jeremy, what was the last experiment that she was willing to do? And that you, uh, so what the was very, the last? The very last thing uh, she went on, it was a phase two clinical trial. So uh, clinical trials come in three phases. So phase one means it's something that just, that's just out of the laboratory and it may have been tested on animals at that point, but it's basically, phase one means it's approved for clinical trial use in healthcare facilities, but it's still kind of like on an experimental basis. Like they need, basically they need to conduct human trials to gather data about its, effic- its efficacy and its side effects and all that. Mm. Phase two, I really never understood the, the big jump from one to two, but phase two means, I think it means like, they have like a usable amount of data from human trials, but then phase three is when it re- when it gets FDA approval, and then, then it can be used in any healthcare facility anywhere in the country. Wow! So yeah, so it was a phase two trial. Uh, my mom did qualify for it, and she actually, I know she failed to qualify for at least one other phase two trial before that. So. Um, because my mom, my mom was uh, coming off of uh, what's called a PARP inhibitor. Oh. It's it's a non chemo treatment. It was actually she was able to take it in pill form, and um, I'm not going to go into the whole scientific explanation, but uh, it it it, um, it attacks cancer a little bit differently than chemotherapy. And then, so my mother was on it um, early in 2017, like through the winter and, and through the, into the spring. And it was working. Uh, her numbers were going uh, the opposite direction. 
which was a good sign. It was showing that, all right, it's doing some good. And her side effects were very minimal from it. And then all of a sudden, it just kind of, it crapped out on her. And then uh, her, her numbers started spiking again. So we knew... And, you know, that was kind of heartbreaking because, like, you know, she was on something. It was, like, the first time in, like, years that she could take, you know, the same drug for months, and it was doing something, you know, so. Uh, so when she got into this phase two trial, this was, um, I think this was, like, August 2017. I, of course, Dad was already living at Atrius, so it was just Mom and I at the hospital. We, um... We went out to Boston. We, we, we were going to have to stay um, one night, if not two nights. I don't remember. But we went out there the day before where she just got some, um, she got some, uh, some like, pre-screening done. And then we spent, you know, we had the rest of the day to ourselves. We actually did a little trolley tour of Boston. And, you know, we got to, we got to enjoy ourselves a little bit. Mm. Um, you know, I had dinner together and everything. And then the next day we go back into the hospital into uh, into the cancer care center and on here we go it was it was it was a very long IV transfusion I think it was um, it was supposed to be like a four hour long transfusion which is a long time to be hooked up to an IV um, mm. and then they were expecting her to get side effects right away um, which she did um, they moved her in, into another room where she could have more privacy and and then it, it just started getting worse and worse and and then it got to the point where the side effects were starting to worry the nurses so they they decided to stop I think after she did complete the four hour transfusion so they they unhooked her from that and then her side you know they were expecting her side effects to kind of reach their climax and then start to start to kind of settle out but they, the side effects were just continuing to get worse so they had to admit her into the Brigham and Women's Hospital next door, and it, it, it was getting late. There was a, like a lot of long wait time. Like she was in the emergency room for a while. I was sitting there with her, um, and then and then it became, you know then when the doctor finally saw her, like they're like, yeah, we're gonna have to admit you into the hospital. Like you're you're definitely not leaving here tonight. Possibly not even tomorrow night. We'll see. So mm. that was that was news to us. So. Um, I remember once they got mom admitted, you know, and I'm, you know, because, you know, we were supposed to stay at most one more night and then be going home the next day. And so I remember mom just told me, like, Jeremy, you know what, you know, why don't you just, just drive yourself home? I know you have work, you have, you know, you have things you have to do, you know, I'm sure, you know, you're going to have to check on, you know, your father. Um, she's like, she's like, hey, you know, I'll, I'll stay here. Because the first one thing and I, they're going to have to keep her for maybe an extra day or two. So I was like, are you sure? And she was like, yeah. And and then she said, you know, once, uh, you know, once I know, the, you know, the day that they're going to discharge me, just come back out here and drive me back home. So I'm like, okay. So I drove home by myself. Um, and then um, about a couple of days later, I was uh, on the phone with the doctor and her and the side effects were just not subsiding at all and they were like we might have to keep her a week now mm. so and i'm just like oh boy like what uh, what did we get into mm. you know you know it's you know what i mean it's like 
it's like all of a sudden it's like this became this went from a clinical trial to opening up Pandora's box or something. Oh. So, um, my, of course, my mother, um, the side effects got so bad that she actually lost her speaking voice for about two entire weeks. So she tried to talk to me on the phone. And it, you know, I, I could, you know, I could barely understand her. And I just, I was like, you know, you know, my mom just, you know, you know, save your, save your strength, save your breath. And I'm like, I'm coming back out there. Like I have to, I have to come see you at least. Mm-hmm. You know, at least on my off days from work, I'm like, I'm coming out there and I'm going to spend time with you. She, she, um, she told me not to. She said, uh, her, her best friend, uh, has a daughter that lives outside of Boston. So her friend actually drove out there and spent the week with her daughter. And she, she was with my mom every day, all day long while she was out there. Is, and so is that best friend, no, is that the one? Home, I don't want you to have to come back and forth to Boston. So is is that best uh, friend the one who lived in Indiana? Lynn, is it? Uh, she has a daughter in Indiana, but no. Um, Lynn and her husband they live um, in Gilderland. Wow. Yep. Wow. So this is yeah. So the, the, amazing, amazing friend. <clears throat> this is an amazing thing to have uh, when you couldn't be there with your mom. She had this. Like these friends went like angels in, in your place. That's really exactly. amazing. Hey, you know, and I, I felt so bad because I'm, I'm just like you know, Lynn's going out there, and I'm thinking like, you know, it's like, what am I doing? It's like I'm, I'm home for what? Like you know, like yeah, like I, I, I was checking on dad. You know, that that was when I was like checking on dad like a couple of times every week, and and I'm like, other than that, I'm like, I got my Home Depot job, and it's like, and I'm like thinking I really should be with mom. But it's but you know once I found out Lynn was going out there I'm like well I'm like I guess you know if my mom really wants me to stay here and just focus on me and dad then you know I'll, I'll honor her wishes then so it, it was it was tough it was they they ended up keeping her out there for 17 days wow and 17 then- days and I think the the last couple of days she finally got her voice back like to just about full strength and. Um, Lynn was at, I think Lynn, I don't actually, I'm, I'm, I think Lynn may have stayed out there for the entire time. Maybe she came back home and then went back out there uh, when they discharged her. Because I think, and you know, that's when Lynn, you know, and Lynn, Lynn and Dirk, her husband, you know, they're still like, they're among the most helpful people, you know, you could ever hope for. Mm. And I think Lynn was just trying to save me another trip to Boston. I saw she, so she was the one that brought my mother home after the 17 days. And, you know, my mother, she was able to walk and everything. They gave her a walker, but she didn't really need it. She was able to walk. She still looked a little bit roughed up, but, you know, at least her voice was back. Her energy level was, like, fairly good. And then, um, and, but then, but like I said, the the last remnants of her symptoms were still just kind of hanging on. So she was home for, like, a day or two. And then she was like, and then one morning she's like, Jeremy, I think you're going to have to take me to the hospital. I'm, I'm still not feeling right. And I mm. took her up to, to St. Peter's in Albany, the women's cancer care. And the, of course, uh, one of the nurses that she knew for all this time uh, saw her. She's like, Debbie, she's like, oh, my God, how, how are you doing? And, you know, she's like, you know, are you, you know, how is, are you, are you still getting treated in Boston, yada, yada? And she's like, and then she could see my mom's physical appearance. She's like, what happened to you? 
my mom gave her the whole story about the clinical trial backfiring and everything. So, so they, so they brought in uh, some more chemo nurses to kind of look at her. They, they, they hooked her up to like a bag of a bag of uh, saline solution, and you know they just want to at least get my mom's energy level back up. And then, so they decided to admit her into St. Peter's for five more days mm. until she was fully over her symptoms. So. So at least in Albany, I was able to go up and see her every day. Mm. And then, um, I think while she, I think during that five days that she was there, I think, and she, you know, and maybe while she was in Boston, she probably had a lot of time to reflect. And um, and then after, actually during the five days at St. Peter's, she decided that this is it. I'm, I'm going. To, I'm going on the hospice care. She's like, I'm done. Mm. So and that was that. Were you able so, to accept? Um, and, you know, honestly, I, after, after something like that happens, I, I, even even myself, I wasn't I wasn't all that surprised by her decision. I was, you know, I, I was. It was really like a decision. I'm like, oh, please don't tell me you're gonna, you know, you're gonna do it. You're gonna you're gonna stop treatment altogether. And, and she's just like, you know, Jeremy. I think you know. I think this is like a sign that I have to stop because. You know, it was like it was like her original oncologist said. If she kept trying all of these treatments that weren't really meant for her, they were going to do more harm than good, and that's exactly what that last clinical trial did. It really set her back a lot, and 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 early early on when she was in hospice, she she did kind of she did recover some more of her health. Like you know, like the symptoms completely did go away by the time that she was discharged from St. Peter's, and then. Um, and, then, yeah, and then the first couple months, you know, she was back at home. She was okay, but you know, but then the hospice nurses would, would be visiting every day, to, you know, helping with her personal care or whatever she needed. And you know, she actually, she, she actually had some other volunteers come by to run errands for her to kind of lighten the load on me a little bit. And um, that's that's kind of how it went. Were Were you with her in the end? I'm sorry? Were you with her in the end, Jeremy? I was. Yep. You were. Um, yep, January 14th, uh, 2018. That was the night she passed. I was right there in the room with her. Wow. I was, uh, I was actually, I, yeah, I was, because uh, at that point she, uh, they had uh, brought a hospital bed into, um, and she was like, basically, she was spending all hours of the day and night you know, in in the living room where, where we had the bed set up, and uh, yep, that that night I was standing right at her side, and um, and I I remember, uh, I remember uh, her eyes were, were still kind of partly open, but she was you know, but she was asleep, and I remember trying to wake her up. I was trying to very very you know, obviously she was in such a fragile state. I was trying to very gently wake her up and ask her if she needed any, any, like, because at that point she was on, like, morphine and stuff, and, you know, or if she needed to, you know, sip on something to drink or anything, and and she just wouldn't wake up, and then her breathing started to become slower and slower, and I'm like, oh, (laughs) so Mm. I I got on the phone with uh, the on-call hospice nurse, 
And I said, yeah, my uh, my mother's breathing is getting a little bit irregular, and she's definitely in like a, a deep sleep. Um, like she's not waking up. I'm I'm trying to, you know, I'm just trying to see if she needs anything. And they said, you know, well, you know, just you know, keep you know, like keep us posted. You know, if if it seems like she's getting worse, then you know, I'll come by. So a few minutes later, her breathing stopped, and then. I then I was panicking, got on the phone with the hospital nurse again, like, you need to get here now. She stopped breathing. And then the nurse just said, Jeremy, she, she might be gone. Like, this might be it. So she said, I'll be there as soon as I can. And, and that was it. You know, she, she was, I was right there at her side when she passed. What a faithful, faithful son. What a faithful son to be mm-hmm. there, 25 years old, and your mom was 60. Oh, Jeremy. Wow. I, I can't imagine. I can't imagine that, that journey. And of course, one of the things that we have to honor as, as we hear this is that your dad was obviously not there because he was living at Atria. Yeah, he was at Atria. And I, and I, I didn't even, you know, the, the next, like I said, it, it happened, it happened pretty late at night. And, um, and the, the people with uh, Brady's funeral home, uh, you know, they came and, you know, they took her body. And, you know, there was, uh, you know, more, more hospice staff that was there. My mom's case manager was there. Um, her case manager was actually a personal friend of ours, too. So small town or small world, I should say. Mm. And, you know, they were there to just kind of, you know, you know, they were just there to just make sure I was all right. And I just, you know, I... You know, I, I, had a, I had some I had some emotions I had to let out, and I just said, you know, you guys go. It's it's late. And I um I had a couple of my friends come over in the middle of the night, and they they spent a good part of the night with me. Oh wow. Yep. Um, and then you know the next day I I, I woke up. I don't know, it was just something like when I when I went to sleep, you know, like like I said, it was very very it was a very hard sleep that night. Like, I'm just like, this is it. Like, mom is gone. I'm officially in the house alone. And I'm like, it's just, it just keeps getting more and more different for me. Mm. Which, you know, I, I knew I knew that day was going to come. But, you know, now I'm, now I'm actually living it. Oh. So. Yeah, and then, um, yeah, I remember I, I woke up the next day. I actually kind of had, like, a, a surprisingly clear head. And I had, I had a lot of things I had to start doing. I had to get back in touch with the funeral home and uh, start making some initial plans for, you know, what, you know, you know, it's the middle of winter. So I'm like, when, when do we, you know, how far do we want to push the funeral? You know, that, you know, that way we can still do the burial and everything outside. And then I had a lot of phone calls to make to relatives. I was so busy that, that, that first day on the 15th, I didn't even have a chance to go up and see dad. So I, so the next day I went up first thing to see him. I told him the news, you know, he, he, he did have a little bit of a sad look on his face, but I think it was just like, you know, he, cause he, you know, he knew even with Alzheimer's, you know, he knew that mom was in such rough shape and he didn't, like I said, he, he didn't, like I said, he's not an emotional person as I told you a few times and he didn't really, he didn't shed a tear or anything, and he, he just kind of hung his head for a bit. And I just said, "I said it, it's." I'm like, "She's gone, Dad." So it's you know, it's just you and me now. Wow, 
and he, he just kind of took it as it was. Jeremy, what, what in that in that those days of January and February twenty or twenty eighteen? This was twenty eighteen. Twenty eighteen. Yep. Um, what was your prayer like then? You know, you now you've lost your mom, and and your dad is is not home with you. What? How were you talking to God at that point? Um, I was. I, th- I think I, you know, I was. I'm just trying to remember how I felt because it was. It, it was. I think I remember. I kept. I, I think I was. I was in touch with so many people. I think I. I remember I kept saying over and over. I said like, "Yeah, this is." I said, "This, you know, you know how people say like, you know, I'm kind of." turning over a new leaf or oh, this, this is a new chapter of my life. It was more than that. It was, this is like a new era for my life. Yes. Yep. It's a completely, a complete transformation from, you know, um, from one status quo to my current status quo with, with things. A lot so, of people, um, a lot of people would say that you've been dealt a really bad hand with what you faced having both of your parents in a sense taken from you, you know, in, in each in their own way. How do you cope? First of all, how do you react to, to the thought, this is a really bad hand and, and how do you cope with having a hand that was, that was bad dealt to you? Um, well, I think, you know, I, I never, I'm, I'm not someone that ever, you know, I don't really, have a whole lot of self pity because I know, because I, I know earlier in our conversation I told you how I've read about things and I've seen you know documentaries and videos about things that are much worse and and then uh, you know I look at myself and I'm like well you know what as bad as this is at least you know with mom's death you know even even back when you know like you said like especially when she started hospice even before that even when she started treatment at Boston or maybe even even maybe even earlier than that maybe when she was doing her last couple of treatments with St. Peter's she knew that you know it was just the odds were so stacked against her to ever be rid of cancer she just knew like everything she did at that point was just trying to buy herself more time and then and and really at the end I think she was really trying to buy her more time for both for my sake and for dad's sake you know, to make sure that he was settled into a place that was going to be able to take care of him and to make sure that I was, you know, mentally in a place where I'd be prepared to, to handle everything, you know, to handle the house, the finances, dad, you know, and then not to mention myself, so. Wow. Um... I forgot what your original question was already. <laughs> well, that's. I think you answered it. I, I'm, I'm curious about hearing what grief oh, was. That's right. You, you were talking about. I'm sorry to interrupt, but yeah, you're, you're saying, you know, do you feel like you've been dealt a bad hand? Well, I'm, yeah. I mean, like I said, um, like I said, there's people, you know, and I've talked to people that have lost loved ones very suddenly, and you know, I, and I think that's definitely a worse hand than I've had because at least with my mother. You know, we had all this time to really prepare for her passing. And she had time to, 
you know, to say farewell to all of her friends and her family. And, you know, and, you know, just, and just, you know, her and I and dad, we had all this time to come to terms with, you know, the whole, you know, with, with death itself and, and, and moving on. Mm. And, uh, you know, and, and I think, and I think mom, you know, and if my mom was still here right now, I think she would agree that, you know, you know what, if I've always to go, you know, I, I mean, I'm sure, you know, I know she wished she could have lived longer to, to see me, you know, get married or have kids of my own. But I think, you know, of all the, of all the bad ways a person can go, you know, I don't think this was such a bad way. Cause like I said, she had so much time to, uh, to have uh, closure, that was the word I was trying to think of, to have closure uh, with, uh. With, her, with, my, with me and her friends and her family and, you know, even with, even with God, you know, even with her own beliefs and her own morals, you know, it's like everything, you know, what everything in her life has amounted to and what everything boiled down to, she, you know, she, I'm sure she was grateful to have all that time to prepare and to have that closure before, before she passed. I, I, it's a beautiful perspective. You know, it, I think a lot of times, like you said, it's almost as difficult as a, uh, a long challenging illness can be. It allows yeah. you to, to get your affairs in order, as people say, in spiritually yeah, and, and otherwise. Too. Like she, especially with, you know, of course, you know, my, my father was, you know, he was set up and he was, living comfortably in a good place and she she'd made sure that you know you know bank accounts were you know were, were set up appropriately and and she made sure that I had a good understanding of our of the family's financials and of income and you know like everything that I was going to have to take over and 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 even her own funeral arrangements she actually you know when she was in her final few weeks I remember uh yeah, we had one of the partners of the funeral home come over, and she actually started making her own funeral arrangements. Mm. And so, I mean, she even got that set up for me. So, mm. it she and, was an incredibly um, strong person. I, I mean, she did lots of frank talking with me too. I remember coming and and talking about funeral mm. plans with her, and uh, yeah, and I I also know how much she loved and admired you. She knew that you were uh, you were a special son. I mean, hand. No one could have been better handpicked for a situation this hard. A son who refuses self pity and is willing to be present to his parents in all the ways that are most important for as long as they need him. It's it's a really remarkable. It's a remarkable yeah, blender. Uh, yeah, thank you, Father. Um... Yeah, and, 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 you know, and it's it's something, and actually, this is something I don't even know if I ever told you about my 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 former roommate from college. You know, he he's someone who's like, you know, he's always going to be a friend for life. He lives in Long Island. He still lives with his folks. Um, I I go down there regularly uh, to visit them. I would say twice, maybe three times a year. I, I'll I'll drive down there and spend a couple of nights. His mother is like one of these. Um, one of these people, she, she is like an extremely devout Christian. Mm. Like she, like, and there's like not, there's like not a, a negative thing you can say about this, this woman. 
and uh, and she's I, you know I, and I've I've kind of coined this phrase like she's like one of the few people you meet who like you're sure that they're like a saint who walks the earth, and she I mean, she was the one that was like you know when I was going through all this stuff with my parents you know she was the one that was reassuring me like you know Jeremy you know what you're doing this is like you know all all of God's commandments are obviously important but you know honoring thy mother and father you are the absolute epitome of that right now and you know, that's like one of the most important commandments that any person can follow mm. and, then, and then you know she said you know you know and for sticking with your parents through this you know especially in this day and age and uh, she said you know like you know you're you know you're gonna be you know you're gonna be blessed for the rest of your life for you know for doing this for them oh so that that was very that was very comforting to hear that from her Oh, that's so, so beautiful. Yeah. And, and, uh, boy, do I, do I agree? And do all of us who are listening, our hearts just did a little leap hearing that because we know it's true. We know it's true. Jeremy, can you, I know everyone is curious about your dad right now after hearing the story. Can you give us a little update? Obviously, his, his illness is one that progresses, which makes us nervous. What's, what's your dad's story? Yeah. So he's, you know, he, he's definitely getting. I don't. I don't know how official it is, but he's kind of getting close to that that later stage of Alzheimer's. Um, he he can verbally communicate, but it, there's a lot of deciphering that you have to do when you because he 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 has a big tendency to ramble a lot, and he, and when he talks, um, and I and I have to tell you know because where he's at because um, he's not. And I, I think I've mentioned this to you. He's not in Atri anymore. Mm. Um, last September, I moved him into a group home um, up in the Rexford, which is uh, just across the Mohawk River from um, uh, Niskayuna. Yeah. So it's, he's even further away. It's it's costing a lot more money than Atri did, but you know it's it's what it's it's where he has to be right now. Um, so, but he's. So yeah, like I said, he, he still can verbally communicate, and I, and I tell staff there, I said, yeah, you have to not focus so much on the words, like, you know, and they, of course, they always, they have, like, this list of, like, you know, if, if he seems distressed by something, you know, that, like, they have, like, you know, like, the, like, if there's a list of questions that they ask, like, Jeff, do you, do you need something to eat, do you need something to drink, do you need to use the bathroom, you know, or, or do you have any, does anything hurt, do you have any pain? You know, all that, like, if, if he can't really, if he can't quite just come out with it, whatever's going on, so, and I, you know, and I, and I tell people, yeah, like, and like, you know, if you're not understanding, you know, like I said, if you're not able to really filter out all the, all the rambling and the babbling that he does now, you know, just, just like, look at his, look at his expression, you know, is he, you know, is, is he, is he motioning towards something, or is he holding part of his body a certain way, or, so, um, you know, you know, so like I said, communicating is a little bit tougher, but, um, yeah, his visual spatial problem, it, it's really, it's off the deep end. Like it's like, he, he, you know, he, he can stand up on his own, but like if, if he tries to walk somewhere, he's completely directionless. Like someone, someone basically has to kind of, you know, put their arm around him or t- take his arm or hold his hand and kind of walk him to where he needs to go. And, um, but, uh, but, you know, his, um, his long-term memory though, I mean, there's still quite a bit of it that's there. Like, obviously like when I'm, when I'm there, he knows it's me. 
Mm. And um, I've I've brought over, you know, over over the time, even going back to when he was in Atria, like I brought um, some of his friends up to see him. So, you know, some people he's known since childhood. You know, I think uh, there was a person or two that he worked with for a long time. And every time, it wouldn't happen immediately necessarily, but every time, like as soon as he heard their voice, it's like, it's like, all right, he knows who it is. Mm. So, you know, which is good. And, and then that, and that's the thing that I would say anytime I, I run into someone in town here that knows me and, you know, knows my predicament, knows his predicament, uh, you know, obviously I always get, how's your father? Have you, have you, have you seen your father lately? Are you able to, are you able to see him during the pandemic? You know, and I always have to say, yeah, he's good. He's fine. I still, um, I still have to kind of, you know, we still have to kind of see each other through a glass door because I, I have to, they, they still can't let anybody in the house. But um, actually, as a matter of fact, um, in two days, I have a, I've got a COVID test scheduled. Um, so as long as that comes out negative, um, I can show them the results so they can bring him outside to me. Aww. And we can actually sit down together. For like the first time in ages. Wow. Oh, I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray that that all works out well. That sounds so important. I, I am too, believe me. I, I, I got COVID tested um, a few weeks ago, and I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm not going to name the place that I went to. It, it was out of town somewhere. Um, the test itself went smooth. I never got the results. Never. No kidding. I, I, I called and emailed the, uh, like, the patient support center. Never got an answer from them. Never, so I'm never going to that place again. Wow. So, so, this, so this is COVID test take two. Oh, bummer, bummer, bummer. Oh, hey, Jeremy, we're, we're at the end of our time, but I don't want to let you go without asking a couple of questions that we, uh, that we ask of, of all the guests uh, that come to share their story. And, and uh, I think you, you're going to have some important perspectives just given what your life has been like and what your story has been like. So first of all, wow, thank you for letting us go on that journey with you and for being so generous in letting us really see backstage we can all hear that uh, the day. Yeah, it's, um, you, know, you know, people say, like, yeah, a little window into my world. And I guess this was more of a, uh, like, a garage door into my world. Oh, and a really, yeah, a really blessed, privileged one. You really, yeah, you you gave us a, a great gift in letting us see so fully. And, you know, and, and don't, and like I said, and, and this, I, I guess, I guess I'm talking to, well, you know, both you, Father, and you know, and anyone that listens to this, it's not like, you know, all this hardship that I talked about. It's not like I wake up and every single day has been like that. Like I was, you know, I've still been able to live like a somewhat normal life in between, you know, all of these, you know, negative events. Like I said, you know, you know, all this stuff from you know when my mother first got sick and then my father got sick. We're talking, you know, over the span of, you know nine years almost 10 years now yes yeah so um so like i said you know there, there were a lot of you know good times you know kind of in between all that and you know like i said i'm i've still been able to live a normal life it's just it's it's just been a very you know it, it's been a heavy burden and so it's you know it's like i've been able to kind of shoulder that 
while trying to live my life normally. Jeremy, a lot of people believe that everything happens for a reason. And other people say, no, that can't be true. You know, things just happen. What do you, thinking of your life, thinking about what you believe, what do you think about that? Does everything happen for a reason? Um, well, you know, and I, I kind of touched on it earlier in the conversation, like how, you know, even, even with the most, even with like the worst, you know, events imaginable that, that have happened to people, innocent people, you know, you know, a lot of people that, you know, that didn't deserve what they got, you know, and, and, you know, and everything else that goes on, you know, even a pandemic like this, that's claimed a lot of lives. Um, and it really, and then not even that it cost people jobs and, you know, and caused a lot of, you know, a lot of stress for people that, you know, that probably didn't have it coming. You know, it's like, you know, maybe, maybe there's some things that happen for a reason. I don't, I, I can't really, you know, confidently say that everything that happens in this world, good and bad, does it all have a reason? And I think I said before, it, is it, are we meant to really know that in this life? Is it, you know, I, I just kind of, I sort of like write it off as like, you know, that's, I think that's just part of God's infinite mystery. But uh, I think in my own personal case here with what, what, you know, what I've gone through with my parents, you know, especially knowing that I'm an only child, so many of my relatives are, you know, were scattered very geographically, scattered very distantly. You know, I, I have I have some relatives that live close to town here, but I mean, I I you know, it's really just been myself, my mother, and my father. We really just the three of us have only been really able to count on each other, and you know, and a select few close friends um, and volunteers that have helped us, you know, immensely along the way. But yeah, may, maybe there was a reason why you know this happened to my parents, especially at you know such a pivotal point. Of, you know, of me, you know, in adolescence, entering adulthood, and now, you know, now, like, I'm in post-college life, living on my own, which, you know, I think that's real adulthood, you know, when you're on your own and you're supporting yourself, mm. um, you know, maybe it was all meant to just, you know, like, to, to test my will, or to, or it was meant to make me as mentally strong as possible early in life. Yes. Yes. You know, and, and, and I don't know. Sometimes I think, well, it was this all to kind of build up my mental fortitude for something that's going to happen further out in my life. I I hope not. Right. <laughs> that, you know what's what's gone on with me for the last so many years. That's that's about as as much as I can take. You're not looking for a bigger challenge, and who can blame you? Well, you know what? I, yeah. I'm curious. You know, speaking of challenges, the whole reason that I'm talking to you and the reason that this series exists is because coronavirus has been such a big challenge for everybody. And so many of our listeners have been met with, with situations and dilemmas they've never dreamed of before now. What, what is your hope of what can come about because of the challenge that we're going through. What are your best hopes for what life can be like after coronavirus is no longer such a big worry? Well, the first thing I want to I want to tell people, especially people that, you know, that really like legitimately worry, you know, take a look at history. 
you know, back, you know, what, during World War One, this country had a really bad influenza pandemic or epidemic, and we got through it as a country. And you know, we, we didn't, you know, we didn't have nearly, you know, the same medical technology that we have now. But you know, we got through it. Not to mention, we got through a whole other world war after that. It's like this country has been through some stuff. Mm. And, you know, you know, we can't, we cannot forget how resilient we are as a nation and as, as, you know, people. And I think, but, uh, but to, to, you know, to, I guess to answer your question more directly, mm. what I can hope for, I mean, I, I, I think everyone hopes that things can go back to normal and no, I don't mean the new normal because, oh my God, I'm getting tired of that phrase. But, um, <laughs> you know, you, you know, even though we all have to suck it up and kind of cope with the new normal for now, but. Yeah, like obviously, I, I dream of a day when we don't have to wear masks everywhere, you know, and we don't have to social distance everywhere, you know. I hope, you know, hopefully, like I said, it, like and like I said, um, but it, but history is showing. Uh, I think even uh, I've heard from a couple people um, that actually back in the 1960s there was a, there was an epidemic of some kind of virus that happened, but. You know, it was so overshadowed by things like the Vietnam War and the Civil Rights Movement and stuff like that, that it just, I, I don't think it really got talked about so much, and we just kind of quietly got by it. Mm. So, like I said, we, you know, we, we've done it before as a country, and and it's, yeah, I, I mean, I mean, like, I guess, I don't know, maybe I'm looking at the too big of a picture, but I mean, maybe it's just history repeating itself again, but, um... Yeah, but I think, um, you know, and, you know, not everything with, you know, with this pandemic's been bad. It's brought out a lot of good. It's, you know, I think it's really, is a firm reminder of, like, you know, how crucial, like, healthcare workers and first responders are in any civilized society, you know, to, you know, to be, you know, to really be the spine that we need to kind of hold everything together. So, um, I definitely have to give props to all those people. Amen. 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 And let me just now take a moment with our listeners to just ask, uh, after after listening, maybe in more than maybe you you took more than one period of time to listen to this rich and and lengthy conversation. What is staying with you? What is something that you heard Jeremy say? that makes you want to look at your own relationships in a, in a new way. That fourth commandment, thou shalt honor thy father and thy mother. What thoughts do you have about the blessings that come from following the fourth commandment, even when it's hard, and especially when it's hard? What are your hopes for the kind of resilience you'll be able to demonstrate when you face your next challenge? What is something that Jeremy said in this conversation that you want to bring with you to the next challenge that you face? Jeremy Tenenbaum, we are so grateful for the time you just took to open up the garage door of your life for us and to show so tenderly and, and beautifully and humbly and honestly what it is that, that has been happening in your life over these especially past 10 years. 
We are so grateful for the, the way that you've lived your life in this community with your family. We're so grateful that we have you as a, uh, as a friend and a companion and a role model. And we ask that, uh, that God will give us the same kind of strength that you've had when we face our next challenge. Jeremy, thank you so much for being with us. All right, you're very welcome, Father. And uh, yeah, then um, again, for anyone that listens to this, um, you know, like, you know, I said I, I appreciate you know your you know your thoughts, and um, you know, and, you know, there's a lot of you know, there's probably people in the community who you know who I know personally that might be listening to this, and I just want to you know just say you know thank you for everyone that's always wished me well and have always you know you know uh, prayed for me and. Um, like I said, I, I truly do appreciate it, even though, even though a lot of times I just kind of, you know, eh, I'm, sometimes I might be a little bit aloof and I'll just be like, you know, yeah, thanks. But I, I think I'm just, you know, I, I hear it so much from people, but I, I really do appreciate everybody's thoughts and prayers. And, uh, and uh, you know, and again, and let's, let's, you know, let's all, you know, keep on moving forward as, uh, as people and as Christians. And, um, I think, yeah, I think, uh, I think it says it all there. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you, dear brother. And thank you to all of our listeners for joining us. May God bless you all.